Welcome to Onco Farm on this Thanksgiving week here in the uh, United States of America. Today I'm uh, I'm excited to to talk to you about uh, the rise and fall of ESAs. And if that title sounds a little uh, historical, it is meant to be. Uh, I guess uh, an homage to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, which is uh, a landmark uh, history written in like the 1700s. It's so old that you can get it for free, uh, and you know on your on your uh, on your e-reader and tablets. Uh, but I'm you know listeners of the podcast know I'm I'm an, I'm a I'm interested in a in a student of history, especially with regards to oncology pharmacy. Uh, and and the thing about history is you know, it tends to repeat itself or at least um, come very close to repeating itself. So I always think that there are lessons to learn um, from drugs. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So briefly, I want to go through the timeline of events here, just so you know where we're going. And we're going to come back to this and kind of go through this in a little bit more depth, but not too much because this could be like a one to two hour talk if you really, really uh, were nerdy, which we're not. Uh, so in 1985, the EPO, so erythropoietin, the gene was cloned, and by 86, recombinant versions of erythropoietin uh, are put in study. And of course, erythropoietin is essentially a hormone that's produced by the kidneys in response to low oxygen levels or hypoxia that then stimulates the bone marrow uh, to make more red blood cells so you get more oxygen carrying capacity, right? We knew that. All right, so by 86, we're studying recombinant EPO. By 89, the first uh, EPOETIN alpha, or just EPO, is approved by the FDA for chronic kidney disease. Um, in 93, we get the, the approval for anemia secondary to chemotherapy, and that's what we're going to talk about is uh, you know oncology patients, not the CKD patients. Uh, in 2002, darbapoietin is approved, um, which is uh, you know allow basically a, a longer-lasting version of, of an ESA. So before you had the the EPO, which was often given multiple times a week, whereas darbapoietin could be given weekly or even you know once every two or three weeks. By 2007, we have a boxed warning that comes out because of increased death and disease progression and toxicity with these drugs. Um, Along that same year, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services said we're going to stop paying for these drugs except for very specific indications in line with the boxed warning. Uh, In 2008, uh, around that time, the FDA announced a Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or RIMS program, that was approved in 2010 and then put into place, uh, I think, in early 2011. Basically, it was called the APPRISE program, requiring uh, physicians or prescribers to enroll in this uh, to ensure that the drug was only used in a very prescriptive fashion for those who met the criteria. And then by 2017, people had essentially stopped using the drug so much and were only using it uh, in the appropriate ways that the RIMS program was eliminated just last year. So that's a time span of about 30 years where there were no drugs. Then we had two drugs that were used a whole lot. Some bad things happened. The use was curtailed. And then everyone kind of figured out what to do going forward in 30 years. Uh, is that a long period of time or a small period of time? I don't know. But we're going to look at, at some of the details. Um, so let's talk about the rise of erythropoiesis stimulating agents or ESE, ESAs. So anemia, you know, I teach anemia, and it's kind of like anemia shmemia. Um, at least from an oncology standpoint or from a pharmacist standpoint, 
now that we don't use ESAs very often, and we're talking why that is, uh, there aren't a whole lot of drugs. You correct underlying, you know, nutritional deficiencies, but you know, you don't, there's not a lot of drug use, not a lot of pharmacotherapy to anemia, other than maybe avoiding drugs or eliminating drugs that could be causing anemia. Uh, however, you know, I tend to do this, and, and, and I shouldn't, and we should not discount the effect that anemia has on quality of life. It's associated with everything. I mean, it delivers oxygen, like oxygen, you know, like it's important. Uh, so it's associated with a decreased quality of life in cancer patients. It's also associated with a worse cancer survival. Now, I use the word association there. It's not necessarily a causation. Um, for instance, for renal cell carcinoma, a low hemoglobin uh, is a prognostic factor. It's prognostic for lots of cancers, but it's in the risk stratification categories for renal cell carcinoma. And we know that for lots of patients, you, you can't, it's hard to come across a, a metastatic prostate cancer patient without some anemia. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you increase um, their hemoglobin or correct their anemia, that their quality of life will be better. But what uh, we learned early on at, with these ESAs is that they worked very well at increasing hemoglobin. They consistently improved quality of life, including uh, energy levels, fatigue levels. Um, you know, one of the endpoints in one of the ESA studies was, uh, you know, an increased ability to do things compared to placebo. And if you go back and watch the Procrit commercials, which was the brand name for Epoetin uh, that was approved for, for cancer-induced anemia. They're filled with patient stories or actor stories, I guess, but the scripts are people saying, I'm able to do this. I was able to make an omelet. I was able to take my grandson to you know, Little League practice. They're stories that, that play up the improved quality of life, which was seen in this. And along with that improved quality of life and the commercials came a whole lot of sales. Uh, and we'll talk about uh, that kind of at the end. Um, so we had these drugs on the market. Uh, as I said, in 93, we get uh, the first EPO in 2002. We get the longer-lasting uh, darbapoietin. So these drugs are being used a lot. Um, and it's been known, especially in radiation oncology circles, that a higher hemoglobin is associated with better response to radiation therapy. Uh, both with regards to local regional response um, and potentially even survival. And this makes sense if you think about how radiation works. Radiation kills cancer cells by producing free radicals, you know, oxidative oxygen, reactive oxygen species. So if you get uh, more hemoglobin, you've got more O2 being carried in the blood, potentially more response. Uh, so that was, you know, what was going on, and you know, there were probably was some off-label use, and potentially, if if you go back and look at this, you can find even lawsuits where drug companies were were uh, alleged uh, to have engaged in um, illicit marketing practices to improve or to increase off-label use of these drugs. We won't get into that, um, but now let's talk about the fall. Of ESAs. We're ready for the fall. So in uh, 2001, there's a publication in the National Journal of Radiation Oncology, um, Biology, and Physics. And this was actually originally presented at a big radiation meeting in 1999. And this is looking at head and neck cancer patients. Um, and they kind of stratified them by hemoglobin, either more than 14.5, which is, you know, normal, or less than that. And then did you get uh, you know, recombinant EPO or not. And I'm just going to 
quote the conclusion here. Low treatment hemoglobin is a negative prognostic factor for head and neck cancer. So you had a low hemoglobin, you died sooner. But having a low hemoglobin as a poor prognostic was, quote, completely abrogated by recombinant human EPO administration during neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy. And I actually gave mitomycin 5-FU along with radiation. So if you, if you can picture a survival curve, you have a line at the top. You have two lines at the top, actually. You have hemoglobin less than 14.5 plus EPO and hemoglobin above 14.5. Those curves are superimposable. They go on straight as an arrow. They hardly drop at all. Uh, and this is about 200 patients looking at two years of follow-up. Then you have a third curve, which is those that had a low hemoglobin, less than 14.5, that did not get EPO. Well, that curve goes down uh, significantly. So there is this early hope that giving EPO can actually improve the survival of patients with cancer. So then that leads to this being studied for lots of other uh, indications uh, or lots of other disease states. Now, before... Um, you know, we would give EPO for people that had chemotherapy-induced anemia, and we would target a hemoglobin usually around 12 to 13 if you look at those original studies. If the hemoglobin was above 13, for example, the protocol would say to hold it. Once it gets below, you know, 12, restart at 50% of the dose. That was kind of the common practice if you look back uh, at that time. Well, now we start to get some concerning publications that come out after people have tried to take advantage of this potential EPO effect. Uh, First, we get the BEST study, and this is published in Lancet Oncology in August 2003. Uh, this is basically just the, the principal investigator of the BEST study saying, we did something wrong and everyone needs to know about it. And not that they did something wrong, it's, they're very correct to put this out, but said, uh, we have con some concerning findings that need to be disseminated immediately, even before the full study is published. Uh, so this study was looking at metastatic breast cancer patients receiving chemo, and the goal was to see did, you know, EPO affect overall survival um, after, you know, giving EPO for 12 months. These patients had to have a relatively normal hemoglobin to get into the study, hemoglobin less than 13, and the goal was to keep their hemoglobin between 12 and 14. So this was basically preemptive treatment for chemotherapy-induced anemia before it happened. The study was stopped early. Um, because of increased mortality in the EPO arm. In fact, the one-year survival decrease uh, was almost entirely due to more mortality in the first four months of the study, which they attributed to, uh, you know, to thrombotic events, potentially. Uh, you know, VTE, CVA, MI, things like that. So this is concerning. Um, this is August 2003 when this comes out in the Lancet Oncology. Um, by October of 2003, we have the publication of Enhance. What were they trying to do? Enhance the efficacy of radiation in head and neck cancer patients. So these were head and neck cancer patients uh, with a hemoglobin of less than 12 or less in women, less than 13 in men. And, uh, you know, they were really sh shooting for hemoglobins that were higher than that, up to 14, because uh, they tracked that. Uh, in fact, they achieved a hemoglobin of more than 14 in women and 15 in men in 15% of or in 80% of patients given EPO compared to 15% placebo. So they really got their hemoglobin not just, you know, to 13, but to 14 and 15, fairly high. Unfortunately, they saw worse local regional progression, so the tumors grew faster or came back faster in the EPO group, and worse survival in the EPO group. Um, now, 
this unfortunately was not just a breast and head neck cancer phenomenon. We also had AMG 2000-161, which was looking at darbapuitin lymphoma and myeloma. More deaths in the darbapuitin group. Uh, we had EPO-CAN20. This is looking at lung cancer patients. And the study protocol was to accrue 300. It was stopped after 70 because of a statistically significant worse survival rate in the EPO arm. That's got to be a pretty big difference to see a survival difference after just 70 patients. Uh, there was the Honka 10, which was the Danish head and neck cancer 10 study. Um, overall survival was worse in the darbapuitin group, although not statistically significant. Uh, AMG 2001-103. This is almost 1,000 patients in solid tumors um, that, that also showed similar effects. Um, that mortality was higher in the darbapuitin group, 26% versus 20%. Uh, we also have the PREPARE study, which was 700 breast cancer patients, um, more deaths in the darbapuitin group. And then GOG, or gynecologic oncologic study group, uh, 191 cervical cancer, overall survival was lower in the EPA group compared to placebo, 61 versus 75%. So we saw varying types of tumors, solids, uh, adenos, we saw squamous cells, we saw hematologic tumors, consistent themes of worse survival in the EPO group. Now they were targeting higher EPOs than perhaps what was necessary, and we'll see that in, in the current boxed warnings, um, which has led us to kind of where we are today. And that's what led to the boxed warnings that came out. That's what led to the REMS program that set very strict criteria for the use of ESAs in cancer patients. And the, the, the restrictions were basically this. Don't use unless the hemoglobin is less than 10, because these studies were targeting hemoglobins of 13, 14. Um, so don't use unless EPO or unless the hemoglobin is less than 10. You do not use EPO unless your goal of care is palliation. In other words, if you're trying to cure this patient, you should not be using EPO. Um, so adjuvant treatment of anything, breast, colon, cervical cancer, no. Acute leukemia, no. Acute leukemia you wouldn't do anyway because it's a myeloid leukemia probably, especially in the induction setting. Um, it's a different topic. I don't want to get down into that, that rabbit hole. So hemoglobin less than 10, curative intent, and then the anemia had to be due to chemotherapy. So you couldn't be, you know, you should not have been using these for patients who had prostate cancer and had anemia because of their disease, not because of chemo. Likewise, if you got chemo, say, three months ago and were still anemic, that anemia is not from the chemo. That's anemia of the disease, and you should not be using EPO. So those were kind of the, the criteria that were put in place by the box warning. Uh, and we saw a fairly dramatic effect um, in prescribing practices. So if you look at the sales of darbapuitin, uh, in 2006, at kind of the height of ESAs, I mean, th these this, the warnings came out in studies in 2003, but we didn't get the boxed warning until 07. So the FDA didn't say, hold up, something's wrong here until 2007. So in 2006, uh, an estimated 4 billion in annual sales of darbapuitin. Uh, after 2006, it starts to fall and falls uh, in half. By six years later, that's fallen to 2 billion, from 4 billion to 2 billion, and stays there thereafter. Uh, in fact, in 06, darbapuitin made more money uh, for whoever makes it, than, than Pegfulgrastin, uh, if you can believe that. Um, I also came across a very interesting publication uh, in the Journal of Oncology Practice uh, from, a, from folks in South Carolina who basically were looking at 
you know, Medicaid patients with chemo-induced anemia with breast, non-small cell lung cancer, and colorectal cancer, which are the three most common solid tumors. So if you're going to look for needles, don't look in a haystack. You look in, you know, a needle stack. And they're looking at, you know, how often basically are these drugs utilized for patients um, that have chemotherapy-induced anemia. Uh, so, uh, and there's a really great image here with the timeline of everything. But in, in 2002, when everything was all honky-dory, um, you know, 44% of patients that were eligible were receiving uh, EPO. Now, that was the same year Darbapetin was approved. So as soon as Darby is approved, you see the use of EPO go of EPO and alpha go down and Darbapetin go up because it's more convenient as far as dosing forms. So by 2006, uh, you see 40% of eligible, eligible patients receiving Darbapetin and 15% receiving Epoetin Alpha. That means 55% of patients who would have been candidates for this were receiving widely used, right? All right, well, that number in 06 goes from 40% for Darbapetin to 33.4% in 2007, the year the box warning comes out, down to 7% in 2010. So at the height, you had over half of patients that were eligible receiving an ESA down to 10% just, just four years later. And that's, that's a, basically a case study of South Carolina Medicaid patients, but it's mirrored uh, nationwide the drastic fall or decline in the prescribing rates of ESAs. So why, why did this happen? Um, why, why the fall? Uh, well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, and this has been studied. There's a, a wonderful article by, I think it's Charles Bennett, Bennett CL and all from the Archives of Internal Medicine in September of 2010, uh, basically reviewing publications uh, and looking for agreement uh, based on authors. And uh, what, what, they, what the researchers did is they group colleagues, they group these researchers uh, into three categories. Uh, basically, uh, academic researchers with no conflict of interest, Academic researchers with, you know, declared conflict of interest, and then researchers who are employed by one of the companies making an ESA. So, as to just basic science publications, are there EPO receptors, erythropoietin receptors, on solid tumor cancer cells? 100% of the academic authors with no conflicts said yes. That's 60% and 67% for those with conflicts. Is there EPO signaling? On cancer cells. 94% of academic authors without conflict said yes. 0%, 0% for the other two groups. Uh, is there a change in cellular function based on EPO receptors? 57% said yes of the academic researchers versus 0% and 0% for those that are conflicted. And all those values were compared and analyzed and were statistically significant. So that's the leading theory right now is that there are erythropoietin receptors on cancer cells. Um, as well, at, and that then leads to increased tumor growth because we've seen not just increased death from cancers, or increased death, which could be due to tumor progression or due to toxicity, say, say PEs, strokes, things like that, MI. And certainly we know from the, the renal and, and CKD data that does happen if you have a, a, an increase in your hemoglobin that's too fast, say more than one gram per deciliter over two weeks. If it's faster than that, you do see more hypertension, more uh, thrombotic events. But we also know that there's increased tumor progression from these metastatic disease studies. Um, so it, it certainly is something to do with the drug and the disease uh, and the interaction of the drug with the disease state. I think the data are fairly, fairly clear on that. Um, 
So currently, there is still a boxed warning. It's slightly changed, um, but this is you know the the darbapuitan boxed warning as of January of 2018. ESAs shorten overall survival and/or increase the risk of tumor progression or recurrence in clinical studies of patients with breast, non-small cell lung, head, neck, lymphoid, and cervical cancers. Uh, that you use the lowest dose to avoid red blood cell transfusion because that's the the primary endpoint in those studies. Use ESAs only for anemia from myelosuppressive chemo, so not immunotherapy, not rituximab. ESAs are not indicated for patients receiving myelosuppressive therapy when the anticipated outcome is cure, which would be ARDSHOP for you know diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That would be adjuvant AC for breast cancer. Uh, that'd be Folfox for adjuvant colon. Uh, and then discontinue following the completion of chemotherapy course. Uh, so what are the lessons, perhaps, we can take away from this? Well, um, when a drug comes out, off-label use is going to start to happen shortly thereafter. Um, and we should always question the hype. I don't think you should diminish the hype, but we should question whether or not there's evidence to support wider use uh, than what a drug is approved for. Um, and, you know, in the end, good science, good science should win as long as we have adequate funding for good science to occur. Well, that's Oncofarm for this Thanksgiving week. Uh, I'm thankful for all you that are listening. I would be even more thankful uh, if you go on to the iTunes uh, right there on your phone, uh, find the podcast, give us a five-star rating. Let us know in a, in a comment what you'd like to hear more of next time. And uh, I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Thank you.